Welcome. My name is George Mann, and I'm the writer of Newbreen Hobbs, Witchwood, and Star Wars The High Republic. This is Kevin Shinnick, writer of Star Wars Force Collector. I'm Kevin Scott, one of the story architects of Star Wars The High Republic. This is Dominic Pace, who plays Gekko the Bounty Hunter from The Mandalorian. Hi, I'm Claudia Gray. I write Star Wars books. And you're listening. And you are listening. And you are listening. To Star Wars Comics in Canon, the Force is strong with this one. And so brings another Star Wars book review. So my friends, this week is something slightly different, but not too different. Um, it is a book review for Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade. So it's not a High Republic novel, because that's normally what the things I'm releasing at the moment are. But it is a novel that I thought was absolutely fantastic. I recorded the episode for my Patreon. I used my handheld recorder in my car to and from work, just to let you know. So the audio quality is not as clear as you can hear me right now. But, you know, I've cleaned it up. It all sounds good. And you can understand what I'm saying. I just thought I'd let you know. And if this is your first time tuning in, fear not. Not every episode sounds like this. It all sounds the way that you are hearing me speak right now. So I want to put that little caveat in. I was also planning on recording this just for Patreon, but I've decided against that. I've got some other Patreon stuff going on, including some more Star Wars Legends book reviews, including I need to get on Deceived, I need to release the review for the Heir to the Empire sequels, Dark Force Rising and His Last Command, as well as I'm listening to Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void at the moment. So lots of cool things there, and a couple of reviews for books that will be coming out that are not Star Wars related, but you're not strictly speaking interested in that because you're listening to a Star Wars podcast. But I want to clarify that before this gets going. The start of it will be spoiler-free, as it usually is, and then I'll give major spoiler warnings and then I'll delve more into the plot and more into my thoughts of this. If you have listened to other episodes of Star Wars Comics in Canon, especially some of the Darth Vader comics, or if you've read the 2017 Darth Vader comics, you will know the fate of the character in this book, but it's still an amazing read, really great to review, and I'm so glad that I listened to the audiobook version as well. So um, I delve into all of that in this review, but I just want to give you that little heads up that this is a slightly less refined episode of Comics in Canon than normal. And then I believe next week I will be doing my usual comics episodes. I've got a few lines up that are not going to be High Republic stuff. It's going to be more Star Wars or Bounty Hunters or Darth Vader or something like that. So uh, yeah, just thank you for listening as always. If you're on YouTube, please like and subscribe, all that amazing stuff. And if you're listening on the feed of Comics in Motion or the feed of Star Wars Comics in Canon, please subscribe to the feed. It helps a lot. And then look out for stuff on social media where you can follow me there at Genuine Chit Chat. I will not be back at the end to tell you what I've got coming up. So this is the only part you'll hear from me apart from the actual full review itself. So just tell me what you think. I appreciate you all. And just a quick note to say apologies, there was no episode last week. I think it's the first week I've missed in a very long time. Normally I put some sort of Patreon content up for you, but it was just so busy and so intense. I only just managed to get the Genuine Chips Chat episode out because essentially there was just loads of busy work stuff and personal stuff and etc. So I just didn't get an episode out. Really sorry about that. I hope this episode does make up for it. And next week I am planning to go back into the usual programming of comics and that sort of jazz as well. So I want to mention that in here too. And without further ado, here is my review of Inquisitor, Rise of the Red Blade by Delilah S. Dawson. Hello there and welcome to Star Wars Comics in Canon, your guide to the wider Star Wars canon through the comic book lens. And to take you on this journey, I'm your host, Mike Burton. Hello my friends and welcome to another Star Wars book review. And this one is a canon book review, so this may be released on the main feed of Star Wars Comics in Canon or the YouTube channel of Genuine Chit Chat, or it might just be saved for Patreon. I do not yet know as of recording this. 
I'm trying something slightly different with the audio, so I hope it sounds okay using my recorder in my phone holder. So again, not touching the recorder, pressed on before I start driving, and I'll press off when the engine is off. But I'm speaking about the book Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade. Now this is written by Delilah S. Dawson, and Delilah S. Dawson is someone who I've heard quite a lot about because I think most people know her from a Phasma book, which is generally considered one of the best sequel trilogy supporting books. I know the broad strokes of the plot of Phasma, but I haven't actually read it yet. Uh, after this book, I will definitely be checking out Delilah S. Dawson's other works. Obviously, I mentioned there is Phasma, and there's also, I believe, Black Spire Outpost, which is one of the supporting books for the Galaxy's Edge Initiative, which obviously is the big Star Wars theme park at Disney World and Disneyland in America and there's the Galaxy's Edge comic book series, well, comic book anthology mini-series, which I tackled on Styles Comics and Canon a little while ago. There's Black Spy Outpost. There's also, I think there's another book as well, which name is escaping me, but there's a few like multimedia projects that are to do with uh, Galaxy's Edge and Black Spy Outpost is one of them. So because of that, it never really got prioritized for me. But I heard that with Phasma, it's a really, really good book. And then Black Spire Outpost has like a couple of characters from Phasma in it. So I think in a little while, I've got Phasma downloaded on Audible. I'm going to go back and listen to Phasma, and then I'll check out uh, Black Spire Outpost. But this isn't about those books. This is about Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade. So as my usual book reviews, I'm going to try. I haven't written loads of notes or anything, or any notes, to be honest with you, because obviously when I record these, sometimes I'm driving. Normally, it's my High Republic book reviews that I go really, really in-depth with all the different connections and stuff. So this one is kind of going to be from memory. I'm going to record it in two parts and then hopefully in the in-between I'll remember to look up a few things just in case I forget anything. But this book focuses on a character called Iska Akaris, also known as the 13th Sister, which is her Inquisitor name. Now, we did actually see Iska slash the 13th Sister in the 2017 Darth Vader comics, which, as I've said multiple times in my life and on podcasts, I think the 2017 Darth Vader comics written by Charles Soule are among the best Star Wars comics that exist. They are definitely in the top ones of the canon. Every single story arc has something new and exciting and interesting, not just around Vader, but like around the Inquisitors, or the Inquisitorious as they're called, Post Order 66, State of the Empire, all those sorts of things. And it has two of my favourite comic issues ever in it, which is Darth Vader number 6, which is when he bleeds his lightsaber crystal, and then Darth Vader number 25, which he has this crazy force vision in. But um, if you want to hear all about that, check out my episode of Star Wars Comics and Canon, where I delve into the Darth Vader comics, and you'll get more than enough detail to satisfy you unless you go read the comics, because then I would always say to read the comics, because the artwork in those are absolutely phenomenal. But she only appeared in episode in issues 19 and 20 of the Darth Vader 2017 comics, and it was quite brief. Now, funnily enough, one of the kind of through lines plot of this book like I'm going to dot around a little bit but I won't give major spoilers I'll, I'll give you a spoiler warning when I delve into the plot overview but or plot summary but essentially she is a red skinned human species or she looks like a human she just has red skin and longer fingers than most that's really the defining features that makes her look different from a human in essence and I remember when I read the Darth Vader comics I was like oh I've not seen someone like this before I don't think so I wanted to like have a little look into it and then it was like at the time it was like, oh, we don't know her species. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. I mean, there are quite a few characters in the Star Wars comics, especially, that do pop up and you don't specifically know their species or it's unclear. And I thought where I was looking, maybe it was just there was a species that 
wasn't yet known or it was a species that someone hadn't identified or even there's quite a lot of times where you get something in comics or in books and things which is a species that existed in legends but in canon we've had like no information about so it's kind of I, I was unsure about that but I didn't delve too far into it because although she is important to the two issues that she shows up in she's not like absolutely completely integral to the plot I was just like oh she's an interesting inquisitor so the book just kind of centre around that, but it, it generally takes place over three time periods. So the first one is the pre-Clone Wars, like before the Battle of Geonosis. So that's only like a small portion of the book, but that's just showing Iskat's relationship with the Jedi and her master and just kind of what she's like when she was younger. Then you get her during the Clone Wars, which is really, really interesting. Like I do... I am getting a little bit sick of Clone Wars content, if I'm honest with you. However, the caveat is that I'm fine with Clone Wars era content if it's not surrounding Ahsoka, Anakin, and Obi-Wan. You know, because I've, I've heard so much about them, and although Obi-Wan is one of my favourite characters in anything ever, I don't really know how much more detail one can give of Obi-Wan, aside from pre-Attack of the Clones. Uh, so if we get some information on Obi-Wan between uh, Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, that's completely fine with me. We've only got one piece of content, I think, off the top of my head um, with him, and that's the Obi-Wan and Anakin comic miniseries, also written by Charles Saul, as in, because Charles Saul wrote the 2017 Vader comics. And it was all right. It, was, it wasn't Charles Saul's best, in my opinion, but it does have some good stuff in it. But it didn't blow me away. And then pre-Phantom uh, Menace, we've just got the Padawan book written by Kirsten White that's really good, and then Master and Apprentice written by Claudia Gray, which is absolutely fantastic. So a little sidetrack that Obi-Wan does very, very briefly pop up in this. But what's interesting is the start of this, or like the midway of this book actually ties in quite nicely with Mike Chen's Brotherhood book. So I would recommend people check that out or listen to my review of that. That's one of the few canon novels that I've released on the main feed of Styles Comics and Canon, just not under the Patreon banner. So check that out or read the book itself because it is fantastic. But then you get her so throughout the Clone Wars and things and what she was up to and etc. And then you get her experience through Order 66 and post Order 66. And I think that the first two parts of this book are really good. They're interesting. They're, they're good stories. And Iscat is a very complex character that I appreciate. And Delilah S. Dawson does a fantastic job of making her seem interesting and relatable in certain ways. While also making her different from a lot of other Jedi. And also the plot itself is good, you know, for a story where you can kind of see where it's going, and I'll delve more into that in a bit, that it's kind of hard when you write prequel era content to make it still interesting and still thrilling because for the vast majority of characters and definitely the events in the books, you know exactly what's going to happen. So it was really, whenever I get really good prequel era content, it always intrigues me more because when it's written well, it just elevates it because I find it's, it's kind of harder to write. Like I love the High Republic content, don't get me wrong, but where you have almost absolute freedom, apart from you can't have certain planets destroyed or the galaxy taken over, and you can't have like Yoda die aside from that like the vast majority of the characters you don't know their fates and as shown in a lot of the books people are not safe uh, so when you have these other content these other pieces of content where you can't have that you have to have strict things that go on with the narrative you have to make other elements of the book more interesting and I think Delilah S. Dawson did an absolutely incredible job of that but the main standout of this book is part three so part three is set post order 66 and it really delves into the inquisitors a bit more the inquisitorious as the organization is called and so for anyone who's listening who may not be aware it's essentially Palpatine orchestrated Vader to train up you know, it, it legend it'd be called Dark Jedi in, in essence. But it would be people who either 
have an affluency for the dark side, have some issues with the Jedi Order, or people that often get captured and tortured and essentially forced into serving the Inquisitors. That's the most of them. Now the Inquisitors show up in, in canon in Star Wars Rebels first, so you get the Grand Inquisitor in Series 1 and then you get a couple of other Inquisitors. I believe, I think it's the fifth brother and I, is it the second sister or seventh sister I think? Um, they're like major players in Series 2. And then in the Jedi games, so Jedi Fallen Order and Jedi Survivor, the Inquisitors do then show up once again there and so in the 2017 Vader comics, you get the Inquisitors a lot as well. But aside from that, we don't actually have that much information. And we really don't have that much information on, like, what goes into becoming an Inquisitor. Like, we see in the 2017 Vader comics, we see, like, a bit of the Inquisitors training in air quotes of Vader, which is normally them just trying to fight him and getting absolutely destroyed. Normally him cutting one of their limbs off is usually how it goes. And we get a little bit more of, like, the Grand Inquisitor but we don't really get the details anymore. Like in Jedi Fallen Order, we get information on how, this is a minor spoiler for Fallen Order, but it's been out for a while now, how Trilla, who might be the second sister thinking about it, we find out how Trilla becomes inquisitive in a sense of she was just tortured for a long period of time and felt like her master, Sia Junda, failed her. So you do get bits and pieces across Star Wars, but you, you didn't have like a concise book that really delves deep into like what they're doing almost in their downtime and what actually the mindset is of some of them and that's what this book really does well and in canon especially in literature and the comics and things we we don't have much dark side stuff there's not really i, I specifically think it's a choice by lucasfilm slash disney that what they're going to do is eventually they're going to release either a series probably a live action tv series or a films or something that's going to delve into the old republic going to delve into a thousand years before the skywalker saga which is when the jedi and sith wars were going on and that's when a lot of the dark side content is going to come out because in Legends, you know, some of the heavy hitters of Legends was the Knights of the Old Republic games and the supporting Old Republic novels, you know, Revan, Deceived, Fate Alliance, Annihilation, but then also the Darth Bane trilogy. And I've gone on record to say, although I love canon, I think the Darth Bane trilogy is almost unbeatable. It's absolutely phenomenal. And I love hearing about all the dark side stuff because from the films and a lot of other content, we know so much about the light side of the Force. And the light side of the Force, you know, plays by the rules. Whereas the dark side doesn't. There's so much more sort of complications around the dark side and what it can do and i generally like more you know without being you know my choice of words here makes it sound like i'm almost saying it's a joke but i like darker content a lot of the time i don't need it to be you know gory and necessarily mature i just like themes that delve into you know the human condition a bit more the characters don't have to be human but you know that kind of term of the deep dark psychology of what it's like using the dark side of the force what that does to a person you know one of the reasons that the prequel era films are some of my favorites especially revenge of the sith is because there are so many redemption stories in you know in star wars but also out of star wars obviously vader's uh, turn back to the light is iconic and is probably one of the biggest most memorable redemption stories of all time but throughout history a baddie being you know bad but then turning back to the good side at the last minute saving the heroes and dying that happens all the time whereas we don't actually get that many stories of heroes falling from grace i think in recent years one of the most famous ones is probably breaking bad but i wouldn't have even said that walter white was ever like a hero necessarily he was just like not an overtly evil individual let's say now i wouldn't necessarily say heisenberg was overtly evil i think he did a lot of bad things but you know what i mean like his his turn and downward spiral 
is something that's fairly close to the fallen hero archetype. But I really like that story. So when it came to Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade, I, I must be honest with all of you, I, I may have said it in a podcast. I, I, I hope I didn't. But I wrongly believed that Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade was going to be about Reva, who obviously is the main Inquisitor in the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Now, I like the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. I don't love it. I think someone described it online, um, and I apologise, I can't remember what who they are. It was someone on Twitter. They described the series as a whole as a 6 out of 10 that has 10 out of 10 moments. And I think that perfectly describes Obi-Wan Kenobi. I think the series as a whole was, was alright. For me, it felt like it would have been much better as a movie or even a four-part series, I felt that there was just a lot of fluff, and there's just a lot of stuff that didn't really matter, and the problem is when you have, like, all the main characters, bar, like, one, being characters that we know exactly what happens to them, it just completely takes away any of the dramatic tension. So, but, but in line with that, you know, there are some incredible moments, you know, the end of episode three, when um, Darth Vader is fighting Obi-Wan, and, and Obi-Wan just gets destroyed. Love that stuff, and when Vader's walking through the village, incredible. And then, obviously, in episode six, when Obi-Wan fights Vader, it's just incredible. Some of the best Star Wars scenes I've ever seen. But that doesn't just... You can't just watch, you know, several hours of something, and then have, like, a five-minute scene that's really good, and it makes up for it all. That's just not really how it works. But... I thought this book was going to be about Reva, and I've got no issue with Moses Ingram. I think her acting was all right in Obi-Wan Kenobi. I thought, I, I, I didn't really get pulled out of it. I didn't think her acting was the best, but I didn't think it was like so bad that it pulled me out of the whole story and I couldn't watch it. And obviously, I completely disagree with any abuse or anything she got online. It was absolutely horrendous, and I'm one who very firmly believes if you don't like the content, you don't have to attack the creators or the actors. That's just ridiculous. But... I thought this book was going to be about Reva, so I just wasn't actually that interested by it. I was like, well, we kind of heard a lot of Reva's story. I don't really need any more detail on it. So I just kind of didn't really pay that much attention to it. And then only a couple months before it came out, I think it might have been uh, Alex of Star Wars Explained, so one of them mentioned it was about the Inquisitor Iscat, and I was like, Iscat? I was like, I don't rec- know that name. I don't recognise that. What? And then someone mentioned it was an Inquisitor who shows up in the Darth Vader comics. I was like, wait a minute. And so I looked a bit more into it. I was like, oh my God, it, it was that one. Oh, right, I see. And then it intrigued me a lot more. So I would have probably picked this up way sooner and been a lot more hyped for it had I not just wrongly assumed something and not looked further into it. So that's completely my bad. But the book itself, it, it's, it's just fantastic. You know, it's something that is fresh in the Star Wars universe. Aside from uh, Adam Christopher's Shadow of the Sith, which for me is one of the best canon, not only one of the best canon novels out there, but I think it's one of the best Star Wars books that's written. I think it's absolutely phenomenal. And it has a lot of that stuff from Legends that people really like. You know, dark side artifacts, weirdness, you know, kind of being able to tell its own full story without it just being like a supporting book for a series or a character. You know, there's too many canon novels where it's basically just a gap-filling exercise for certain movies that came out. Like, I really enjoyed Rogue One, don't get me wrong, but there's two books out there that I have not yet read, which is Rogue One Catalyst and Rebel Rising, and both of them are just supporting books for Rogue One. And I, I don't necessarily... I'm not really that interested by her. Like, Jyn is a cool character, but I'm not, I'm not that interested by her. And then... I'm not really as interested in the building of the Death Star even more with Galen Erso. Like, I, I, that's not really what intrigues me about Star Wars. I like weird Force stuff. The thing for me that makes Star Wars different from most other franchises is twofold. One of which is because there's essentially two universes, but where they're building on one universe, you know, the two universes being canon and legends, where they're building on, like, one universe, 
all content that you consume after 2014 all connects together and there are a few minor continuity errors i know a lot of uh legends elitists will try and claim that the whole canon is broken none of it makes any sense they're wrong i've consumed every comic i have read a huge amount of the books i've read i've watched every single tv series and th there's no major continuity errors there's a few minor things here and there you know a lightsaber color change or like the cer certain events that are shown in the bad batch are different to what's shown in the canon comics by a bit but i can kind of you know, I can make that work in my own head. I, I can, there's a few little bits that's a bit like meh, but it still can work. They've not like rewritten canon. They've not like broken the movies as much as a lot of these clickbaity articles like to send out, which is ridiculous. But that's one of the things that I like about Star Wars. But the other thing about Star Wars is the force. You know, things like Star Trek and other sci-fi properties. I know things like Dune, especially, you know, Star Wars takes a huge amount of influence from Dune and really probably took quite a lot from it, probably a bit too much, maybe. Um, obviously, so Dune was the kind of the first sci-fi piece of content, specifically the books, that really played with the idea of this mystical magic or thing binding the universe together or like something that someone can kind of tap into and become an elevated human, you know, or elevated person. So I'm not saying that Star Wars was the first one to do it, but Star Wars has developed the Force more than like, any other content I've seen out there. You've got Marvel and lots of other pieces of content. Like You've got a lot of fantasy stuff that does have magic in it, but I'm not talking like overt magic and spells, although those elements are cool in Star Wars, especially the Night Sisters. I'm speaking about just this idea and the philosophy of the Force and what one can actually do with it, where you can have such variety, where you can have characters like the main Jedi or the Sith or anything like that who can wield the Force and do loads of really intense stuff with it, but also characters like in Rogue One the blind monk Chirrut Imwe who has clearly a connection to the force that means that he has something that a lot of sort of normal air quotes humans wouldn't necessarily have but that he can't you know use the force to lift a ship off the ground or anything like that so I, the force is the main draw for me for Star Wars along with all the content being interconnected and in Crystal Rise of the Red Blade really goes deep into a lot of elements of the force and a lot of the restrictions of the Jedi because I think a lot of things that George Lucas you know I'm not one who worships George Lucas thinks everything he does is amazing because it's not frankly in fact there's a lot of Star Wars stuff he's done that is not amazing you know I love the prequels but Phantom Menace is not an amazing movie you know some people may feel that way and you're entitled to your own opinion but I think as a just there's parts of that film that obviously are just quite weak unfortunately not to say the sequels don't have issues and even the original original trilogy does as well but the thing is i think what george was trying to tell in the prequels and he didn't do the best job of doing this is trying to show that the jedi the reason there were no that none of them left in the original trilogy is because they were heavily heavily flawed by the time of the prequels heavily flawed so when that idea comes up you have to kind of delve deep into why that was and I think that this book does a really, really good job of showing that. And a lot of these things that I think people, when they look at the Jedi, they think, oh, I'd be a great Jedi, you know, I, it'd be so cool to be good. And as I've gotten older, I've really started to come to the idea that I think I would probably end up being a bit more like Iscat or a bit more like Anakin, where, especially if in the world that we live in at the moment, if I just had magic powers, it would be pretty hard not to abuse them. You know, when someone, if someone walking down the street and someone makes a rude comment, you know, to begin with, it, you maybe just use the force and make them trip over a little bit. But, like, if someone was being, like, overtly rude or even violent to someone I really cared about, I don't... If I had the power to just lift them off the ground and choke them, I, I don't know if I wouldn't do that. If I just had this power where I could essentially be untouchable, wouldn't be wounded by a fight, 
You know, so when you have a Jedi who's like questioning the philosophy of the Jedi and a lot of questions she raises and she just gets shut down, I actually connect to that quite a lot because when I was in a primary school, which I can't remember what it's called in America, but basically, you know, when from the age of like five up to the age of like 10 or 11, I went to a Catholic primary school and neither of my parents were especially religious. So it was an interesting thing where I would ask quite a lot of questions. I've always been very inquisitive and I am intrigued by religion, but I asked a lot of questions and I would always get shut down because I think with a lot of religions, especially the more conservative ones and Catholicism is, you know, not to downplay anyone who is a Catholic, but Catholicism is basically a more conservative Christianity. You know, Christianity, especially because Christianity was essentially formed by Henry VIII wanting to remarry, you know, the Protestant church or that jazz. Like, it's essentially a more relaxed view on religion and less dogmatic and less strict with the rules. And I had, I struggled quite a lot when I'd ask certain questions, either because of the uh, contradictions in the Bible or certain things that didn't make logical sense, or like in one lesson in school, we'd be taught about science and a certain thing. And then we'd be taught in religious studies something that was completely contrary to that. And I'd ask questions about it and I'd just get shut down. And that made me quite jaded. It didn't, if, if you ask questions and you're told to just not ask these questions, it doesn't make the question just go away. It just makes you feel like someone is hiding something from you. And then it raises a level of distrust. And then when that happens over and over and over, over like years, especially when there's certain questions that are quite important to you or have quite a large impact in you and your life, once that starts to happen, you start to lose faith in the organization that you are a part of. And that's not just religion, you know, that happens in places I've even worked, that happens in all kinds of different things. And so being told you can't ask questions never really solves anything. And I think that the prequel era Jedi really failed in so many ways of that mindset, of that thing of, well, the dark side's bad, so never talk about it and never do anything with it. And it's like, well, you know, I'm not saying they should use the dark side of the force, but if, if you tell someone to abstain from something, if you promote abstinence in any form, it literally doesn't work. Like, not to get into a huge political discussion, but like, for example, it has been shown in the studies that I have seen that in states in America that have higher religiosity and push for more abstinence and no sex before marriage and not talking about anything like that and not promoting having sex with protection and using proper contraception in those states they have a huge they have a much higher percentage of teen pregnancies and of stis of sexually transmitted infections because when you don't teach people how to do things properly they will still do them. That's just a universal truth of humans. The whole, the irony is the whole idea of the Bible, the whole first story of Adam and Eve, the forbidden fruit is literally God saying, you can do whatever you want, just don't go near that tree, don't eat those apples. And then obviously the snake, which is basically the devil, comes in and says, why does God not want you to eat those apples? Maybe you should try them, you know, see what God's not letting you do. Like that whole story, although I think in a lot of religious interpretations meant to be don't listen to the devil, don't listen to snakes, do what you're told. I always interpreted that as, well, we're being told that we can do anything apart from this one thing and you won't tell us why. So if God at the start had just said, look, if you, those apples are very special. If you eat them, you will then become very self-conscious. You will then have all these feelings and emotions that you can't really comprehend or process at the moment. So I don't think you're ready for that. So when we're ready, maybe we can talk about you trying some apple, but for the time being, could you just not have any because it's too complex? That may have made Adam and Eve, if these two humans existed in the way the Bible says, it may have actually made it so these two humans didn't eat the apples and then never 
felt the shame that they felt, then never had to wear the clothes to cover themselves up, and then wouldn't have got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So, like, the, the, the core value, like, the first, one of the earliest stories in the Bible, literally has this parable, which is really interesting to me. And that's one of the things I love about Star Wars. There's so many connections and social commentary on religion and politics and the world. And it's just one of those things that abstinence just doesn't work. I've never, ever seen any example where abstinence works for sex or for any other matters. So I just think that it's so cleverly written here by Delilah S. Dawson that that depth to it really isn't explored in the films enough, I find. I think that the whole fall of Anakin, I think as a broad strokes of the plot, really, really good, really interesting. I controversially think that the prequels have a better or more complex and more interesting story than the original trilogy. However, it is told in a much less concise way there's a lot of dodgy dialogue and there's just a lot of fluff in between which i think somewhat hurts the message hurts the plot so i think people perceive the prequels as having the worst storyline even though i'd argue they have the best storyline it's just told in the worst way and i think that if a maybe more competent director no shade george lucas or someone an, another director who helped george lucas like they did with you know empire strikes back and return of the jedi if you had someone else there just to kind of balance out a few george lucasisms i think the story of anakin could have been absolutely phenomenal instead of just being really good but with some flaws so you know this is all kind of rambly skirting around the outer rage this is less of a book review and i'm just kind of talking about i'm basically criticizing prequel era jedi which is not why i went into this uh, book review uh with the intention of doing um but you know to summarize before i delve into the actual plot and obviously i'll give a little bit of spoiler warning um but this book is absolutely phenomenal i would say this is in the top five of the best canon novels that are standalone you know ignoring some of the there's a lot of trilogies like the aftermath trilogy and the thrawn trilogy that are really good and obviously the high republic everyone knows i'm a massive fan of the high republic but i think it's standalone novels this is in the top five i'd say for me personally i think we've got lost stars shadow of the sith and inquisitor rise of the red blade as the three best standalone canon novels and i'm going to be recommending this book to loads of people including you fair listener i think that this is for me i'd actually say i think this is a nine out of ten I think this, Lost Stars, and um, Shadow of the Sith are all 9 out of 10 novels. I don't think any of them are quite perfect. Um, I am very, very rare is it that I give a book or a film a 10 out of 10. It's very rare for me. When it comes to Star Wars, I'm not even sure if there is necessarily a 10 out of 10 book. If there is, the closest for me would either be the Darth Bane trilogy or each of the Darth Bane books, because they're all phenomenal, um, and The Rising Storm. Uh, by Kevin Scott, the High Republic book. They're probably the closest, I'd say, that are 10 out of 10. But, yeah, I'd say definitely pick up this book. It is amazing. The audio narration is incredible. It's by uh, Kristen C., um, who I'd not heard before, but she does such a good job. Really was involved in the story, and I just found it to be absolutely brilliant. So, they're my spoiler-free thoughts. So, now I'm going to delve into the spoilery kind of territory. I'm going to talk more about the plot, and there's a connection to the Darth Vader comics, which is the first thing I'm going to mention, which is a spoiler for the book if you've not read the comics and aren't aware of the character's journey. So, uh, be aware of that. So, this is the spoiler warning, the final spoiler warning. I'm going to delve into the plot details and talk a little bit more about Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade. So, 
the plot of this, obviously, I already mentioned it goes through the three eras, pre-Clone Wars, during the Clone Wars, and post-Clone Wars. So pre-Clone Wars, it's about Iskatakaris, and it shows her, like, struggles with the Jedi Order, and their philosophies and things, which I touched upon earlier, and her relationship with her master. Now, there are little hints and bits of pieces that you kind of see that show that Iskat isn't... isn't being told the whole truth about things you know she asks about her species and they keep saying well you're just a jedi you don't need to worry about your species and she's like well other people know their species the twi'lek over there knows the species you know doesn't mean that they're gonna go to ryloth and spend their entire lives there but they, they know where they're from and also there's certain species like Togruta, um who have you know connections to the force via some of their biology like their montrals which can help their connection to the force and she's just constantly told no and one of the things that you find out, and this is going to, I'm going to kind of flip between the whole of the book back and forth, but again, this is a, this is going to be spoilers. She finds out that there's been one other member of the Jedi Order, at least in recent history, that is a member of her species. Now, her species, I think, are Pakori from the planet Pakora. It's something like that. Or she's a Pakorian from the planet Pakori, I think the name was. And her master has got a lightsaber hidden in their bunk now the reason or the way that Iskat finds this out is that Iskat goes to the Battle of Geonosis along with there's around 200 Jedi I think of the Battle of Geonosis and I believe from memory I think it's around only 20 survive um, so it's probably the biggest massacre of the Jedi in the last sort of century or two I know in the High Republic quite a lot of Jedi die um, I can't remember exactly how many I don't know if it's quite as many as 190 in like one go I'm fairly certain it's not that many but Essentially, the Battle of Genos wipes out a lot of Jedi, a lot of Jedi Masters, including Iskat's Master. And Iskat's Master's dying breath quotes, you know, says, you know, I'm sorry, so-and-so. I can't remember the name of this uh, other person's name. But I'm really, really sorry. I failed you. I did what I could with her. And that plagues Iskat for a while. She speaks to people about it. And no one really gives her any information. So Iskat is then kind of left by herself to kind of figure out what she's doing. And one of the things is with the reason I mentioned earlier that it connects to Brotherhood is because after the Battle of Geonosis, which obviously is after, which is the end of Attack of the Clones, there's a knighting ceremony. So a handful of Padawans become Jedi Knights without having to go through their explicit Jedi trials because the Jedi Council kind of say, well, the Battle of Geonosis kind of was like your Jedi trials and also we need Jedi out there and a lot of Masters have been killed and there's just that because of so many high-ranking Jedi went to the Battle of Geonosis, a huge amount of Masters and people who would be training Padawans got killed. So then they've got this huge amount of Padawans, a lot of younglings and initiates who are going to need Masters in the near future, and they just can't. So one of the things that Jedi Masters do is promote a lot of or potentially inexperienced Padawans up to the rank of Jedi Knight. Now, we see this in Brotherhood. That's how Anakin Skywalker gets promoted to a Jedi Knight. It's in with these ceremonies. And we see throughout the Clone War series that quite a few Jedi Padawans become Jedi Knights just so they can fight in the Clone Wars as a general and then lead a whole um, army or squadron of clones to then go ahead and 
take on their own missions. This leads to a whole host of problems because there's inexperienced Jedi Padawans who haven't learned enough doing things they shouldn't be doing, but also a huge amount of them doing this get killed. Um, there's one which I believe is the Lair of Grievous arc, um, or Lair of Grievous episode, which is the strongest episode in season one of the Clone Wars, in my opinion, and it's actually one of the strongest one-off episodes in the whole of the Clone Wars, even though I think series one's a bit weak. That episode in particular is very strong. And minor spoiler alert, in that episode, one of the characters is a Padawan who's only just been promoted to Jedi Knight, does something that's quite inexperienced and gets killed because of it. So it is repeating or further reinforcing that these Jedi Padawans are just inexperienced and the Jedi are thrown into a war they should really never have got involved in and they're promoting teenagers into the rank of generals uh, when they shouldn't be. So Iskat is kind of left to herself and she's kind of you know, confused what to do, and she's just kept being told, I oh, just do what you would do if your master was here. And she's like, well, my master would just make me meditate a lot and go find, like, force artifacts and stuff, but I can't go off and find force artifacts. I don't have the same connections and people. I don't even really know where to go. So she's just kind of left to herself for, like, I think it's a few weeks to just kind of wander about before she had the knighting ceremony. Then she has the knighting ceremony, as I mentioned, and then it kind of goes on from there. She gets to go on her own mission um, with someone called Tualan. Now, Tualan is a black-skinned Twi'lek who... I've not actually seen a black-skinned Twi'lek anywhere else apart from one place, which I'll get into in a moment. And he's quite an interesting character. His cat kind of fancies him, um, but he doesn't seem to reciprocate those feelings. But obviously, the Jedi, but it be celibate, and blah, blah, blah. Um, so they clash a little bit, and they go on this mission. His cat makes a split-second decision, which... In my opinion, she didn't necessarily do anything wrong with the information she was given. The person who was meant to be the lead of that mission was killed, which again wasn't her fault. And then she ends up blowing up this factory, this droid factory. Uh, and then after the fact got told that, well, because you blew this up, you weren't meant to do that. You were meant to get information and get data from this terminal and stuff. And because you blew this up, um, you killed lots of innocent workers who you didn't know were there. Uh, or a load of innocent workers. And she was like, well, how would I have known that? And they were like, well, the lead of this should have told you. And she was like, well, he didn't. And then he died. So what was I meant to do in that situation? And they're like, well, you're meant to follow orders and you know, not blow up a whole droid factory when you're told you're meant to go scope, scope it out. And she's like, well, there's no other option. And then her and Tuolan clash on that because he obviously supports the side of the Jedi Council and stuff. So she then feels a bit ostracized. And then they tell her, essentially, you need to teach the younglings. You need to spend, I think it's the first like two years or so, maybe even a bit more, of the Clone Wars. The Clone Wars went on for three years. She has to spend two plus years of that training younglings. And although she notes that the training younglings was actually beneficial for her because of her conflict and all these things, it just felt like she's being sidelined. And her calling was to go out into the into the universe. And when she's in the Battle of Geonosis, she like kind of connected with the Force, had like a battle uh, like concentration and then wiped out loads of Geonosians really easily and kind of freaked out a lot of her um, not quite colleagues but fellow Jedi Padawans at the time and she's kind of had issues kind of tapping into the dark side of the force to a degree there's like this event that keeps getting referenced which you find out sort of a third through the book which is when she was a youngling when they were meant to be training to lift this I think it's like a vase off the top of this column uh, you meant to float it gently down and place it somewhere um, and what she did is inadvertently grabbed the whole column and brought it down and then crushed one of her best friends, permanently damaged their spine, and then this friend of theirs, after being healed, then left the Order. And she always blamed herself for that, and a lot of the other Padawans were then scared of her and blamed her for that and stuff. So she's felt since that moment she's been unfairly aligned with 
someone who can't control their powers, someone who, you know, isn't really to be trusted, and all these things. So that's like a thing going on in the background. And then the Geonosis thing happens where she, you know, kills those Geonosians really well. Certain people kind of commend her for that, but most people kind of look down upon her for doing that, even though that's obviously what loads of other masters did as well. But again, she keeps feeling like she's not being treated the same way as everyone else and she's being punished for stuff that other people wouldn't be punished for. So she's always got this kind of turmoil within her. And so she goes on this mission and she then obviously goes wrong and then she has to stick with the younglings for ages and she finds it helpful but then she also realises that any of these emotions and thoughts and ways that she disagrees with the council, she has to bury deep within her and she feels like she's a stranger, she's like a, an outsider within the Jedi Council. Then she eventually gets called to a mission, she goes out, it's her and Tuolan and I think someone else um, and then they do the mission, I can't remember off the top of my head what the mission was but they go off and do it and then I think around that time, or then they might go on another mission, then Order 66 happens. However, when Order 66 happens and the clone troopers turn, they turn against Tuolan, and I can't remember why, but they kind of get separated a little bit, but she doesn't go back for him. She kind of leaves him because she assumes that the clone troopers killed him. And the clone troopers don't kill her. Now, I must add that Palpatine actually spoke with iscat once or twice over her time throughout like just before the clone wars throughout the clone wars there was a point where she had to like escort him somewhere so she like walked with him and spoke with him for a bit and then every now and then they would kind of cross paths and he would talk to her and stuff and obviously him being serious he could feel the turmoil within her he could tell that there was some issues that she had with the jedi order so he obviously preyed upon that and when order 66 happened he somehow had it so that the clones didn't kill Iscat, didn't have her noted down as a Jedi specifically. Now I think it was Alex Damon of Stars Explained that said that he thinks that Palpatine has like a Google Doc and he just updated it with people's names and that kind of got live updated to the uh, the chips inside the uh, clone troopers' heads. So it was kind of like, well, Anakin Skywalker, don't shoot him. He's an exception for Order 66. And certain other members of the you know future Inquisitorious, like the Grand Inquisitor um, and obviously like Iscat, and there were a few others. So she isn't killed in Order 66, and the clone troopers just escort her somewhere, lock her in a prison for like an, a quite a while, I think it's a few weeks, and then it turns out obviously the whole galaxy has changed, there's the Empire now, there's the Inquisitorious, etc. And then it shows her kind of trying to fit into a degree with the Inquisitorious. She has like a little fight with Vader, she has interactions with other members of the Inquisitors, including ones we've seen in Rebels, including ones we've seen in uh, Jedi Fallen Order, and ones that are shown in the 2017 Darth Vader comics. So you get her kind of there and she's like fighting and kind of becoming one with the dark side a bit more. She's finding herself. She really feels like she actually kind of belongs in a way because she doesn't have to repress all of her emotions. It's actually told to embrace them. She finds that her true calling isn't just going around the galaxy and finding false artifacts with her master or uh, training younglings. She thinks it's fighting and then eventually kind of comes to terms with it's actually probably killing. She's very good at it. So... When she's in the Inquisitoria, she really delves deep into the dark side. She gets to read all these forbidden texts that she couldn't read. And also, she's allowed to go off and kind of, to a degree, do her own thing. And the first thing she does is tries to track down this other member of her species. Again, she doesn't know the name of the species. She knows nothing about them. So, and this is quite a major spoiler to warn. It turns out that this other uh, Bacorian is actually her mother. So what happened was this other Bacorian became a member of the Jedi, failed her Padawan trials, and if you fail your Padawan trials, then you basically get, get given a choice. You can either leave the order permanently, or you can 
stay in the order as like um, you can work for them basically you can be like a, a janitor or like an assistant in certain places you can kind of like do stuff that does help the Jedi but not explicitly Jedi business that's kind of how it works and when this happened to her mother uh, her mother didn't want to do any of that and basically went back to her homeworld found her homeworld so mum went back to the homeworld um, of Pakori and met with her like kin and things and got on really well with them then eventually fell pregnant and in this scenario like you don't find out who the dad was I think it's not really relevant to their culture it's not really about that and when she fell pregnant and um, Iscat sort of was growing only a, a year old I think it was maybe not even that a year or two she already started showing force sensitivity. So Iscat's mum then contacted the Jedi Order, contacted her old friend, who was a Padawan at the time, which ended up becoming Iscat's master. So Iscat's um, master, who obviously at the time wasn't Iscat's master, went to uh, Pakori, and then be because Iscat's mum wanted her to, took Iscat to the Jedi Order, and her mum kind of hoped that Iscat would be able to succeed in the Jedi ways that she failed at. So knowing all these things this cat goes to her, her planet and basically finds out all this stuff in a lot more detail she had like hints and bits and pieces of it but she went there she spoke to her kin who recognized her and knew who she was by her like smell and by her look and by her kind of general demeanor and then she spends a little bit of time there kind of seeing what the life could have been in a sense she finds out a lot more about her mum and then finds out that her mum just became incredibly depressed um, after giving this cat to the jedi order and then eventually just wandered off into the desert alone, never to be seen again. You find out later on uh, in the book that her mother did that specifically out of choice and seemingly took her own life. And certain members of the Jedi Order felt uh, Iskat's mother pass. And so from all of those things happening, that's why Iskat's master took on Iskat and tried to guide them in a different way, tried to make sure that she didn't fail in the ways that her mother did. But obviously this was just hiding lots of stuff from Iskat, because obviously Jedi are meant to have attachments or connections to the family, it's one of the reasons they're taken from their family at such a young age, and all these things. So Iskat comes back from her journey and speaks to the Inquisitors and stuff, and the, you know, the Grand Inquisitor's like, cool, whatever, I don't really care. Um, you know, go ahead, here's some missions, go hunt down some Jedi and stuff. She does some Jedi hunting and stuff and really likes it and revels in it and finds the challenge exciting and stuff and then finds that Tuolan was not actually killed by the clones, he was just heavily injured and then he was basically tortured into becoming part of the Inquisitors. He's a bit messed up, he's like, he has these moments where he kind of loses himself a bit, doesn't know where he is, like almost loosely like Alzheimer's or dementia but kind of PTSD stricken stuff it's 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 quite intense as I said it's quite a dark book uh, really well written though um, and then her and uh, Tuolan kind of connect and um, kind of hate each other a little bit and flirt and fight and all that stuff and then they eventually admit to their feelings somewhat to one another and then have a physical relationship so that's all going on and I'm about to get to the end of the book now I've alluded to this part uh, in this review so far but I knew the ending of what happened to Tuolan and to Iskat now the reason for that is in the two Darth Vader comics um, which I think were issues 19 and 20 for Darth Vader 2017 where Vader goes and tries to find the Zabrak Jedi Master Eithkoth who left the Jedi Order I think it was just before the Clone Wars I think it was after episode two or just around that time and he left the jedi order so he wasn't around for order 66 that sort of stuff and he started a family 
And what the Inquisitors went to do is find this Force-sensitive baby. For, you know, Palpatine wants Force-sensitive babies and kids and stuff. So obviously, Rey is Inquisitors, blah, blah, blah. Well, in the comics, Iscat does this stuff and succeeds and whatever. And they succeed in their mission. And then they're back at the Inquisitorious place. They're kind of celebrating. And then Vader can kind of sense the connection between her and Tuolan. And obviously the attachment and stuff is not good because it's a weakness that can be exploited. So Vader then tests them by not saying anything to them. He ignites his blade and goes over to slam it against Iscat to see what would happen. Tuolan protects Iscat from this blade and then Vader's like, hmm, interesting. You know, your feelings betray you, that kind of thing. And then in the comics, Iscat and Tuolan run away. And I want to clarify, Iscat and Tuolan, you don't, I'm pretty certain that you don't know their names in the comic. They're just kind of known as Inquisitors, uh, but Iscat is known as the 13th sister, um, is her like official name, so you know her as the 13th sister, I think, in the um, in the comics, you may not even know that, I know you, she's just like an, an Inquisitor, um, and then, you know, Vader tries to basically kill them, they run away, there's this big Coruscant chase that in the comics is really, really good, but obviously you can't really outrun Vader eventually, he catches up to them, and the way he kills them is by lifting them both up in the air with the Force, puts them near each other, lifts up both of their lightsabers with the Force, and then ignites both of their lightsabers at the same time, and just, they both kill each other. And that's, like, the end of their story. And that's basically where the book ends. So I knew the fate of Iscat, and people who read the comics, or knew a bit about the lore of Inquisitors, already knew that going in. But it's still made for such a good story. Like, so interesting with the dark side, and the Inquisitors, and Iscat's struggle. And you really sympathise with Iscat, because if you're in that position, I myself am a, am a very inquisitive individual. So, if I was in something like the Jedi Order, where you're not really allowed to ask questions, and, you know, it's shown that a lot of the time, if you question why do you do things, Luke did it in the original trilogy, and Anakin does it in the prequels, I think more so in the Phantom Menace, but also he does it in the Clone Wars, he questions why the Jedi Order do or don't do these things, and then it's like, just trust in the Force, don't ask these questions, you shouldn't need to know why, you should just have faith. And I think that if I was in one of their positions, I would almost certainly be kind of more aligned with this cat and Anakin. Um, I wouldn't necessarily want to go around killing people, but, you know, I, I don't want to say I would never ever do that. I could, I'm, I'm the one who could use the dark side of the Force and it would never taint me, even though the kind of story of Star Wars is counter to that. So I really, really enjoyed the book. I thought it was so well written. There's so many cool connections to, obviously, the Darth Vader comics primarily, but there's connections to like lots of other things. Like while I was listening to the audiobook, again uh, read out by uh, Kristen C, who does a really great job. While listening to it, there were certain characters or species that popped up, and I was like, "Oh, I recognise this," or I, "I feel like I know this from somewhere." And obviously, when there's the Brotherhood ceremony, there's dialogue that's taken like exactly from the Brotherhood thing. And once again, with Mace Windu disliking Anakin, Mace Windu disliked and did not trust Iska. And there's even parts where she finds out that Mace Windu like had people to watch her and to report back to Mace Windu when she went on missions because he didn't trust her and it's one of those things where like Mace Windu at the end of the day was right about not trusting Anakin and Iscat because they do turn to the dark side but also his own distrust in them is actually one of the contributing factors as to why they end up falling in the first place so it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy it's that kind of thing where if you expect the worst from someone and they know that, and they can feel that, then they will, they will just act in the worst way. Because it's like, well, why should I act nice if you're going to treat me as if I did the bad thing anyway? So I might as well just do the thing I want to do. 
So again, you know, Mace Windu, very cool character, well played by Samuel Jackson, and arguably one of the greatest swordsmen and one of the most powerful warriors in all of Star Wars. But you know, he was a bit of a dick. Like, let's be honest here. Like, he he he's actually one of Megan's least favorite characters in all of Star Wars because she blames him a lot for the fall of Anakin Skywalker and for what happened to the universe uh, or the galaxy. So that's like a broad strokes of the plot. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head if there's any other sort of things. Like there are subplots and other little bits and pieces that also... Like there are other subplots and bits and pieces and other elements that I haven't specifically delved into because, you know, the audiobook is, I think, 11 or 12 hours long or something like that. You know, and this review is meant to be less than an hour. So it's like I'm not going to just stand here and just tell you every single thing that happens and all the connections because I would as I say with all my book reviews and all my comic episodes, I want you to support the creators, I want you to support this, you know, go out and buy the thing on uh, as audiobook or buy it physically, I'm probably going to do the thing where I listen to it on audiobook, I love it so much I'm going to buy it anyway because I just I loved this book, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I'm going to delve into Delilah S. Dawson's other stuff because, you know, with Phasma for example, we know Phasma's fate from the sequel trilogy, but I'd love to have this style of writing and get more into the head of Phasma and then I'm intrigued by certain characters that I've been told that are in the Phasma book that then reappear in... Um, I think it's Black Spire Outpost is the name of the Galaxy's Edge book. So I'm like interested to see these characters reemerge in a story where I don't know what happens to the characters in it. So I'm definitely going to be looking into uh, Delilah S. Dawson's other work. If Kirsten C. does do any more uh, audiobook readings or anything like that, I'll be very happy to listen to her you know, narrate again. It was very well done. And it was just really cool getting much more information on the Inquisitors. So if you're like a prequel era fan and you like Order 66 as a storytelling device and all the actual act of it happening and you like mainly prequels, if you like prequels or maybe if you don't like prequels and you want a bit more weight to them and assist with your kind of coming to terms with the fall of the Jedi, this is just an absolutely fantastic book. It's a really, really great book for a Star Wars fan, but it's one of those books where even if you weren't really a Star Wars fan, I think you would really enjoy this because it's so human, it's so relatable, and it's so well written, and the action scenes are very well done, but they're very easy to follow, while there's a lot of hearts to this book, there's a lot of connections, you know, connecting to one's own culture, but one that you weren't raised with, I think it, it really goes beyond Star Wars. I feel like a lot of individuals who are members of fam, if they're members of families, are parts of a certain religion, or I imagine if you're an individual who isn't living in the country of your birth, or where your sort of ancestors are from, or, or even if you are from, say, a minority demographic, for example, you know, if you're a person of colour, or for example, and you may not know that much about where your culture comes from or things like that. I feel like this book would really speak to you in certain ways. I know it spoke to me, and obviously I am not from one of those groups, but I still completely empathize and, and sympathize with that idea. So really, really enjoyed this. I think it's a fantastic read, fantastic listen. You know, all Star Wars audiobooks are done very, very well. So uh, yeah, two thumbs up from me in this and just, I've said before, like, I'm, I never get sick of Order 66 stories. I know some people are sick of seeing them on screen, and I'm a little bit sick of Clone Wars era tales, but I would be more than happy to see the Order 66 montage of every single Jedi that we know who does and doesn't survive Order 66. There are so many of them that 
I'm really interested by. So, you know, I, I think the big one is like Quinlan Voss, and I have a feeling that there's going to be some big plans with Quinlan of what's going to happen with him because he was quite a fan favourite in Legends, and he appears a bit in the Clone Wars, and then there's that book Dark Disciple that's brilliant, and then he's name dropped in the Obi Wan Kenobi show, but. We don't know really what else happens to him. We don't know if he's around in the original trilogy. You know, I don't know if Quinlan is being saved for a video game. I've not finished Jedi Survivor, but I suspect if he was in it, I'd have seen a spoiler for that by now. Um, so I'm really, really interested to see what happened to Quinlan Voss and any other of these uh, Jedi characters and what happened through uh, Order 66 for them. And I'm sure there are plenty of other characters too. But I think that's going to be enough from me. Um, thank you so much for listening as always my friends I appreciate all of you listening and tuning in and supporting the show and I will speak to you very soon with more book reviews I've got the Legends book reviews due I know I need to do Deceived with the Darth Malgus one but that's probably going to be a short one because I can barely remember that book and then I've also got to do the sequel books to Heir to the Empire um, was it Dark Force Command no sorry Dark Force Rising and His Last Command um, I listened to them so quickly I'm probably just going to do one book review on both of those uh, and then I think my next book is probably going to be the Legends book uh, Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void uh, and then I've got a few other things downloaded I've got Phasma downloaded I'm tempted by the Thrawn Ascendancy trilogy um, I've got Annihilation which is a Legends book downloaded so I've got a lot of other cool things but friends just thank you so much as always I appreciate each and every one of you and of course, may the Force be with you. The intro for Star Wars Comics and Canon is arranged by myself, Mike Burton, and the backing music was made by Eric Matias of soundimage.org. You have just experienced host, creator, everything else of genuine chit-chat, and also the host and creator of Star Wars Comics and Canon, found on the Comics in Motion podcast, Mike Burton.